able to stand and to turn one another where you are and offer each other a sign of the peace of Christ. You may be seated. A reading from the Gospel according to St. John. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. And if God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so I say now to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. As I've told you in the past, I was raised in a, in a fairly conservative wing of Christianity. Growing up in the evangelical heartland of America, Grand Rapids, Michigan, I came to believe that my responsibility as a Christian centered on my ability to defend the faith, the art of faith defending we called apologetics. In fact, I was convinced that the highest calling to which one might be called was sort of an apologetics ninja. That is to say, I thought that protecting God from the predations of the faceless hordes of the godless through the proper application of an irresistible sort of theological smackdown that occupied the most enviable sphere of Christian vocation available to us. So I wanted to be Batman with a bullet, a suitably cross-shaped bullet, but a bullet nevertheless. There was, of course, when I was a kid, uh, Josh McDowell, the sort of Jedi master of those who fought for the faith the author of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a handbook for those who thought winning arguments about Jesus was the surest sign of a faithful life. He crisscrossed the country, going especially to universities, applying the sort of 
intellectual hammerlock for Jesus, beating atheists into submission, evidence that demands not only a verdict but a frightened cry of uncle from those who'd been giving God such a difficult time with their fancy scientific theories and philosophical trickery. Creationism, the existence of God, global flood, the problem of suffering, the proof of the resurrection. I mean, I was all over all of it. I was one of the defenders of the faith, I thought. Sort of defense against the dark arts, or as I would have called it, secular humanism. Now, I read up on all of that stuff, hoping to sort of sharpen my skills, hoping always to, to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. That's where we get apologetics from, right? To give an apology, a, a defense. I was committed to the idea that the way you show everybody that you follow Jesus is by knowing more than everybody else. Believing all of the right things things, and then sort of arguing those things better than your opponent. In short, as I look back on it now, I was, I was an insufferable twit. Remember one of my Bible college professors telling me, you know, you'll never argue anybody into heaven, which I took as something of a challenge. Because I was, I was convinced that to the extent people couldn't be argued into heaven, it was because nobody had, who was smart enough to come up with a perfect argument, which would sort of overwhelm the intractable defenses of the godless and allow the light of Jesus to come shining through. I wanted to be that guy, to see the dawning realization of utter defeat in my opponent's eyes as I squashed yet another trifling bit of intellectual sleight of hand. I mean, if I saw myself coming now, I would probably walk the other way. I have a sneaking suspicion that you've come in contact with people like that before. They're typically the kind of folks who show up at pride festivals and abortion clinics with bullhorns and homemade protest signs about the inhospitable climate in hell and how they're perfectly willing to share with you your ultimate travel itinerary for the afterlife. But I mean, look, I, I'm not against being right. I try still on occasion to do it myself, but I'm all too aware of the impulse among some of my Christian friends and family who have prized the right beliefs over everything else, as if believing all the right things is somehow the true demonstration of one's love for Jesus. Growing up as I did, knowing the eternal disposition of your soul was, was extraordinarily important. It was common, therefore, to run into people who spent an inordinate amount of time asking, how, how do I know that I'm saved? Of course, people came by that question honestly because the preachers, 
I was exposed to in my younger years often regularly inquired, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? Which is a kind of rhetorically souped up version of how do you know if you're saved? I had nightmares about that stuff. We were conditioned to wonder whether or not we believed enough of the right things and stayed away from enough of the wrong things to sort of sneak past St. Peter at the pearly gates. So that's why becoming a guy who knew all the right answers, who could best the liberals in theological fisticuffs, seemed like such an important thing to me. I mean, it felt like the one thing I was good at that would give me an unequivocal answer about whether or not I loved God sufficiently enough, and therefore whether or not God loved me. But, but having some kind of surefire proof of celestial purchase, I mean, that's not a new thing, is it? I mean, people have always wanted some, some kind of extra insight into how their faith positions them in relationship to God. It's not new. This question about loving God sufficiently is top of mind for the disciples in our text for this morning. Our passage comes at the tail of a well-known crossroads for Jesus in the Gospels. Just prior to our text, uh, in chapter 13, you'll find that Jesus and the disciples have just celebrated what we now call the Last Supper. Do you remember that little fine dining experience, right? Just hours before Jesus will be arrested by the goon squad because he has this sort of nasty habit of challenging the empire and all the religious hooligans that are busy propping it up. Do you remember what happens in John's version of the Last Supper? It's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, in John's gospel, after dessert, Jesus gets up from the table and he starts washing everybody's feet, which, of course, offends the delicate sensibilities of Simon Peter, who tells Jesus that there is no way that he's going to let Jesus wash his feet. And Jesus responds by saying, Look, knucklehead. Washing feet is what I do. And if you want to follow me, then you're going to have to get used to washing other people's feet. For I have set you an example that you should also do as I have done for you. But it's what Jesus says next that starts them wondering about whether or not they love him sufficiently. Because he says, very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they say, wait, what? Who said anything about betrayal? I mean, we're the good guys. I mean, haven't we been following you back and forth across the Palestinian backwoods? And they start looking at each other. And nobody can quite work up the courage 
to say it out loud, but in their minds they're all wondering, is it me? Am I going to be the one? And if I were, how would I, how would I know that? I mean, I feel like I love Jesus, but am I the weak link here? But Jesus doesn't leave them hanging long. He tells them that the one who will betray him is Judas, which is, of course, something of relief to the other 11. But still, the whole thing, it had to have shaken them up because, I mean, Judas was just like them, just a guy who'd been taken up, who had taken up with Jesus back in the very beginning, certain that they were all headed towards some kind of great revolution in which the shackles of Roman oppression would finally be cast off. But, but now, things have changed, and apparently Judas is going to drop dime on Jesus. What does that even mean? I mean, you can imagine that everybody's reeling after they learn that one of their own is going to sell Jesus out. Because, you know, given the right set of circumstances, they wonder, would they maybe do the same thing? And if they could betray Jesus, what does that say about their own level of commitment? I mean, how do they know what true commitment to Jesus even looks like? Is there some kind of orthodoxy text, test that they have to pass? Do they need to be able to win arguments with unbelievers? Well, what is the true test of whether or not they're genuine followers of Jesus? Well, what does Jesus say to them? He says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. But this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, if you want to know what loving Jesus looks like, it looks like loving each other. Now, on its face, the commandment to love one another seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, everybody knows what love is, don't they? But, I mean, do they? Really? Because I, I, I've seen people proclaim their love in some pretty suspicious ways. I've seen women with bruises all over their bodies permanently scarred on their souls from having been loved too intensely by the men in their lives. I've seen women clothed in shame by people who loudly proclaim their love as these women seek to make decisions about their own health, their own bodies, their lives. I've seen people kicked off food stamps by Christian politicians who announce their love with words like personal responsibility and incentivizing the poor. I've seen people who claim to love Jesus go on to love immigrants by putting their children in cages. I've seen homeless LGBTQ kids who've been loved right out into the street by families and churches 
with Jesus just dripping from their lips. Love, at least the way that it gets enacted in our world, appears to be a much more malleable concept than we like to believe. One time I got a, I got a voicemail from a young guy whom I'd never met before, and the message began saying, hello, my name is Benjamin. You don't know me, but one of your colleagues referred you to me. He said, so he went on to do some research about Douglas Boulevard Christian Church and the kind of work that we do here, especially the work advocating for LGBTQ people. And he wanted me to know that he really appreciated our efforts and how encouraging it is to hear about a church that actually cares for folks who've traditionally experienced only heartache at the hands of the religious establishment. And that felt really good, right? Nice to have your work affirmed by a stranger, sort of out of the blue, unsolicited. That put a smile on my face. I'll be honest. But Benjamin proceeded to relate a bit of his story. He said he came out to his parents when he was 12. And being religiously conservative, they did what they believed to be best, and they put him in reparative therapy. You know, sort of pray away the gay. And the whole thing damaged him so badly that he's assiduously avoided church ever since. I mean, you could hear the bitterness in his voice. And over a very short period of time, I went from feeling perhaps, a, you know, maybe a little bit too self-satisfied at the initial compliment to feeling awful <laughs> for this young guy and his trauma. But then he said something to me that struck me as both profoundly sad but strangely hopeful. He said, I can only wonder how my life would have been different if there had been a church around that had loved me for who God created me to be instead of trying to change me from what it feared I represent. Of course, I, I started thinking about the suicide prevention workshop that we had at the church some years back. Turns out that LGBTQ young people are two and a half times more likely to contemplate suicide than their straight counterparts. More frighteningly, I found out that those same LGBTQ youth are eight times more likely to attempt suicide. But why the significantly higher rates? Well, there's bullying, of course, right? But bullying is something that frequently happens, often to a lot of kids. Perhaps even more deeply than bullying, though, LGBTQ kids experience rejection and isolation at the hands of the very people who are supposed to look out for them who are supposed to love them and keep them safe. 
their parents kicked them out of the house at alarming rates, making homelessness among LGBTQ youth twice as likely as among straight youth. And the churches that they attend often brutalize them in the name of love. Young people are dying at an alarming rate in order to allow some folks to retain the purity of their personal sense of integrity. But that integrity costs the lives of children. Apparently, it's a price that many are willing to pay. So we have to come to terms with the fact that Many LGBTQ young people have to find their way without the folks and institutions charged with caring for them. I was thinking about that when I spoke to a pastor about his own church. It seems that there are some young adults in the church who would like to have a conversation about how the church can become a place of welcome to LGBTQ people. Apparently there are some people in the church who think that just such a conversation would be dangerous. Afraid that people will get angry about it and leave. I mean, after all, they argue that, that there are so many other important things in the world. And as a pastor spoke, I, I, I thought about Benjamin I thought about all the LGBTQ young people going through hell because the folks that they trust to watch out for them have belittled and abandoned them. And I wondered how life would be different if there were churches around that loved these kids for who God created them to be, instead of trying to change them from what church people believe they represent. My continual prayer is that we find out, that we find out what it might look like to have a number of churches willing to welcome and embrace these children. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But here's the thing. Loving people like you is a necessary but insufficient indicator of your love for Jesus. Anybody can love people who look just like them, who talk like them, who work and play like them, who are from the same countries, I mean, neo-Nazis and white supremacists have proven that that's not a particularly heavy lift. But the kind of love that Jesus is talking about requires something more. That we wash the feet of people whom we may be otherwise convinced don't deserve it. How do we do that? It's not easy. The powers and principalities ultimately killed Jesus for that kind of love. But if you want to know 
whether or not your love for God is sufficient? If you find yourself asking, how do I know I'm saved? And looking around the people that you love, truly love, that's a pretty good place to start. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.